Have you ever had a plan that you worked on, developed, really became convinced that was going to be a perfect plan, a good plan, one that had, you know, like no holes in it, no problems whatsoever, only to have it backfire on you? I don't know if you've ever been through a situation where you planned something or, or, or you set something up and you thought it was gonna be so perfect, so ideal, and it ended up maybe blowing up in your face kind of thing. I remember this happened to me when I was a junior or a senior in high school. And uh, I was staying the night one weekend at my best friend's house. And, and he, he had this uh, kind of old beat up little car. And, you know, we just kind of drive around town. And I mean, we had me driving around one, I think it was like a Friday night or something looking for something to do. And you know, wherever you grow up in the world, like if that's all you know, you become convinced as a teenager that there is nothing to do in that place. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it doesn't matter where you grew up, when you grow up at a place, even if it's right here in, in the Tampa area with beaches and Disney and Universal and Bush Gardens and everything else, doesn't matter. You know, like wherever you grow up, you kind of become convinced, well, there's just nothing to do. And so we would drive around one Friday night with nothing to do. And I said, hey, I got an idea why don't we drive up to the state of Michigan? Now, I lived in Dayton, Ohio at the time. I said, why don't we drive up to the state of Michigan? We got some friends up there that we'd met at a, at a church camp the summer before. Hey, let's go up and see them. He's like, well, what do you mean go up and see them? Like, like, who, like are our parents gonna sign off on this? Like, man, we don't have to tell them. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna give you a little heads up. Genius right here. You're looking at one, okay? Well, tell mom and dad, no, no, they'll never know, man. I'm like, I'm staying over at your house tonight. Like, uh, listen, we can just drive up there. It's like three hours, okay? Stay the night, hang out tomorrow, like all morning, all afternoon, drive back, get back tomorrow night. I go home, like that's what time I was gonna get home anyway. We good. Genius right here. My friend's like, okay. So I'm not kidding you. We're driving around Dayton, Ohio, nothing to do. We figure out, right, we're gonna go. So we go, don't tell anybody. Now, of course, this is like before cell phones. Okay, some of you are like, Pow. okay. Like there wasn't any way for my parents to track my location. Like there was no way for me to like call them. Had we broken down and had you seen his car, there was a very high probability that we broke down somewhere. Okay, like it was the dumbest thing. But in my mind, it was a rock solid plan. We drive up there. We get up there to, to not far from where our friends live. <clears throat> Had to call them on a payphone. Hey, we're gonna happen to be swinging by your neighborhood tomorrow. Is it okay if we swing by? Oh, that'd be great. What, what brings you up this way? We just happen to be driving through. <laughs> now, when we, got, when we got up there that night, we, our plan started to have a few holes in it, namely... We didn't have any money. That's a small detail when you take a trip. We slept in his car. I got cleaned up the next morning in the restroom at the Burger King. I mean, I don't mean to brag or anything, but it was like royalty. I was at the Burger King, okay? We, we go over, this is when the plan starts to fall apart. We go over to my friend's house, okay? One of them may or may not have been a girl. Starting to make sense now? 
no guy does something this stupid for another guy, okay? There, there were definitely a couple girls involved. We wanted to see it. We met at camp. We thought, let's just go hang out. So we go, okay, her parents, okay, the one that I liked at the time, he was a pastor. Get there, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, we just had to be driving through. Do you think that, that they bought that? I thought they bought that. And then they started to turn the tables on me. They said, well, how are your parents doing? Oh, they're doing great. They're doing great. Yes. Oh, so I guess they're good with your little trip. Oh, yeah. They're great. With, hey, I got a fresh bushel of apples. I'm not kidding you. That's a fresh bushel of apples. They, hey, listen, would you take these back and give them to your parents for me? Of course I will. Be more than happy to. I'm thinking that's, that's our dinner on our way home. <laughs> I'm like, man, my parents are probably going to see them like at our next year's church camper. I don't know something. I'm like, man, this is not good. And as the day just goes on and on and on and on and on, like I, I'm still convincing myself the plan's gonna work. But, but looking back, I'm seeing where this plan is destined to fail. Not because it was a bad plan. I mean, as you can see, it was bulletproof. But it just started unraveling. By the time I got home that night, I walked in the front door of my house, went in and say hello to my parents. Of course, the look on their face and their questions. Well, how was your time this weekend? I knew. <laughs> I was in a lot of trouble. Thought I had this perfect plan, you know? And, 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 and as the plan's like unfolding, just one right after the other, a conversation, a bushel of apples, you know, it was just, it, 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 was just, it began to unravel and it, and it turned out to, to be like where I got in trouble. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, you know, like where you think you had this perfect plan you had this scenario crafted in your mind or maybe it was a conversation or a meeting you were going into and like you had it all scripted and uh, about what you were gonna say and how it was gonna work. Maybe it ended up blowing up on you, but, but perhaps you've been through something similar, maybe through your own stupidity, like that was certainly the case with me in this situation, or maybe it, it, it was really through no fault of your own. Well, listen, we're walking through the book of Esther together and, and we've seen... A theme developing in the book of Esther, okay? Real history that transpired at the height of the Persian Empire. We, we've seen this theme developing of an unlikely queen and a hidden hero. I mean, we've seen some incredible things happen, haven't we? Where you, you've, you've got this king named Xerxes. He was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And his queen uh, humiliates him by refusing to come out and uh, to embarrass herself in front of the king and all of his, his governors and officials. And, and so they, they remove her as the queen. And so now they go through a, a, a Miss Persia beauty pageant where they bring in 400 women into the fortress at Susa where King Xerxes was located. They go through the process and it's a horrific process of the king selecting the woman in whom he delights to be the next queen. And he selected a woman by the name of Esther, a young, beautiful woman who just so happens to be Jewish, but she doesn't disclose her identity because the Jewish people were often viewed as a threat in the nations that took them into captivity. 
and kept them in exile. And, and so she's got a cousin named Mordecai who lives there also in Susa. And Mordecai's been telling Esther, hey, don't tell anybody about, about your identity. Don't tell anybody about what, what's, what's happening here with you in terms of your ethnicity. And so she doesn't. But then we, we, we saw where through the course of leadership changes, this guy named Haman is, is now second in command in the whole empire. He's like the prime minister. And Haman is a man who, who is completely enamored with himself. And he's walking around one day and Mordecai, the Jew, does not bow and pay homage to, to Haman. And so Haman becomes incensed. We look at this last week, if you weren't with us, where Haman is outraged and he, he goes to the king and he says, hey, king, we've got a guy here who won't give me honor. And he's a part of a people. Finds out Mordecai's a Jew. He's a part of a people that, 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 that are, are despised. And if you look at Haman's ancestry, he was an Agagite and the Agagite and the Israelites were, were, were not on good terms to put it mildly, so to speak. So, so there are multiple reasons it seems that Haman has it out for Mordecai and the Jewish people. He gets the king to pass a decree that not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish race is to be abolished. They set a date. They send out couriers throughout the entire empire to communicate on this date. You're to take every single Jewish person in your towns and your communities and you're to execute them and then take their silver into the fortress at Susa. Haman said, now don't worry, kings. Like I, I, I can put over 300 tons of silver in the treasury by doing this, King signs off on it. Mordecai learns of it and he goes to Esther and he says, Esther, through a messenger, he says, Esther, you gotta do something. And Esther, if you recall, she's unwilling at first. She's hesitant. She's like, no, if I go to the king without an invitation, I could be killed. And you remember the, these fateful words, Mordecai saying to Esther, no, 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 no. If you don't risk the palace, you risk everything. No, 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 if you're not willing to go, you're gonna be discovered, you're gonna be found out. God will raise up deliverance for his people, but it won't be through you if you're not willing to act. Perhaps, perhaps, Mordecai said, the Lord has put you here as an unlikely queen for such a time as this. And that's where we pick up the story today. We see Esther willing to go before the king. And we see here how in God's providence, his kind providence, he actually takes Haman's plot and he turns it on its head so that Haman is the one who has nothing to show for his plot at the end of it. Sometimes the Lord works in, 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 in these ways. It reminds me of what the Proverbs teach us. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen Proverbs 26, 27? The one who digs a pit will fall into it and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. That's what we're gonna see happens with Haman. Raymond Chandler said, there is no trap so deadly as the trap you set for yourself. Well, the Lord is, is, is going to work in a powerful way, believe it or not, through the pride of Haman. The Lord's gonna bring miraculous deliverance, not just through an unlikely queen, but ultimately through a prideful plot that the Lord turns on its head and ultimately brings deliverance through Haman himself, through this plot that's failed. We're gonna see how God uses this to bring ultimate deliverance to his people. So let me show you here in, in Esther 5, as we pick this up, a little bit about this man named Haman and, and about this plot that he has concocted and how, 
how the Lord flips it on his head. This is fascinating. First of all, I want you to see a little bit of insight into the pride of Haman, the arrogance, the self-absorption of Haman. Check this out. Now, verse nine, that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. Remember, Esther was, was asking the king initially just for a banquet for herself and Haman and the king. And so Haman, we are told, left full of joy and good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, so he's leaving to go home, he sees Mordecai again at the gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence. And so Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. But yet Haman controlled himself and he went home. He sent for his friends and his wife's arrest to join him. And then Haman described for them, check this out. He said, what did Haman talk about when he had his friends over for a little barbecue? Here's what he talked about. Haman told them, described for them, his glorious wealth and his many sons. That was a mark of identity for a man, the perpetuation of his family line. Look how much wealth I have. Look how many sons I have. He told them, all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman said, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet that she has prepared. You hear the pride dripping from this statement, don't you? I'm wealthy, I've got many sons, and check this out, the king's having a little private banquet coming up. I'm the only person who's been invited. I will private audience with the king. But then look at this. But still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall, ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it, and then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Now, here's how prideful this man was. He gathers all of his friends together. He recounts for them how wealthy he is, how many sons he has, and the fact that he's got this private audience with the king. But he's so wrapped up in his own arrogance that he cannot let the slight that Mordecai has given to him and the fact that Mordecai will not bow to this man, this evil man. Haman will not let it go. I mean, think about this. The guy is the prime minister of the Persian empire. He has more money than he can spend. He's got an incredible family. This guy is as blessed as you could be, but but he's so arrogant, so prideful that he cannot let this one little slight go. And so he recounts all these blessings and it's like, you know what? But this guy, Mordecai, I just can't get past this. I can't be happy until this guy is dealt with. I can't sleep in peace until this guy is gone. So his family's like, well, hey, just we go to the king tomorrow before you guys sit down and start eating dinner together. Just say, hey man, I got this guy. I know we've got this edict about the Jews and to kill the Jews, but listen, we got one guy. We can't wait till that day's come, come, coming. So, hey, I got some gallows constructed on my property. We're just gonna hang him. You good with that? Haman's like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. That's my game plan, okay? Now look at what happens next. Chapter six, verse one. That night, that very night, remember when I told you, I've been telling you all series that Esther's about a hidden hero and that for those of us who know the Lord and we know King Jesus, there's not such a thing as coincidence. There's only divine providence. You wanna see another example of this? It just so happens, it just so happens that on the very night that Haman is at home planning to hang Mordecai the next day, having the gallows constructed, that very night, look at this, sleep escaped the king. And so he ordered the book recording the daily events that transpired throughout the empire to be brought and read to the king. 
Say, hey, have somebody come and just read from the, the history to me. You can't go to sleep. And they found the written report of how Mordecai had informed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. The king said, well, wait a minute. What honor and special recognition has been given to, to Mordecai for this act? Remember, Mordecai had spared the king's life not long after Esther was named queen and nothing was ever done for him. We pointed that out at the time. Now this history is being read. It just so happens it's read the very night that Haman's planning to kill Mordecai the next day. Just so happens that, that of all the history that could have been read, this is the history that's read. It, it, it just so happens to prompt in Xerxes' mind the question, well, wait a minute, what did we ever do to honor this man that saved my life? And they say nothing's been done for him. And so the king says, well, who's in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace. Obviously, it's early in the morning. King not being able to sleep. Here comes Haman. The king's like, well, who, who's out there in the court? And they say, well, Haman's, Haman's there because Haman was up early to prepare the gallows and talk to the king about hanging Mordecai. And so the king's attendants said, Haman's there standing in the court. Well, have him enter, the king ordered. So Haman entered and the king said, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? I've got somebody I need to honor. What should we do for him? Now check this out. Haman thought to himself, well, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? <laughs> I love this. Haman's sitting there. I see what you're doing, King Xerxes. I see what you're doing. He's like, who, who would be more deserving of honor than me, Right? And so Haman told the king, now look at Haman's own heart. What you're gonna see here next is that Haman wants to be regarded with the same honor as the king. That's what he wants. He's appealing to his pride here. He wants what the king gets in terms of honor and glory. So he says, for the man who the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the entire city square. Call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king said to Haman, Absolutely, that's a great idea. Hurry up and go do exactly what you have proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate and don't leave out anything that you have suggested. Now, this is a lot worse than driving to Michigan and coming back with a bushel of apples. <laughs> Haman's in a lot of trouble. King learns that Mordecai had been an instrument of preservation. He saved his life. And it just so happens that on the very night that Haman was devising Mordecai's demise, the king had planned to honor the same Mordecai. Now listen, do not miss the providence of God in all of this. Our God is in complete control over the circumstances of men. It just so happens that Vashti is removed as queen at the time when Esther was available and a, and a young, beautiful woman in the Persian empire. It just so happens that out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women, Esther is brought into the harem and chosen as queen. It just so happens that Mordecai learns of this plot on, on King Xerxes' life and spares him. It just so happens that on the very, the, the very time when Haman's planning Mordecai's destruction and the destruction of the Jewish people, 
that the king has the book of history read to him. And it just so happens that the history that's read is the history of Mordecai. And it just so happens that Haman was coming and presenting himself in the king's courtyard at the exact time that the king was inquiring how to honor the man who had saved his life. And it just so happens that Haman, it just so happens that the history that's read is the history of Mordecai. And it just so happens that Haman was coming and presenting himself in the king's courtyard at the exact time that the king was inquiring how to honor the man who had saved his life. And it just so happens that Haman got to be the one to go honor the man that needed to be honored, even though he himself wanted to be the man who was honored. Our God is in complete control of the affairs of men. He is providential over all that transpires and he has a plan and a purpose even through the pride of Haman. I mean, you can't miss, you can't mix the irony, you miss the irony here of, 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 of the king is there and, and he's there in the morning, can't sleep. Now he's like, oh, I gotta honor Mordecai. And then, and then Haman is there and the king's like, hey, bring him in here. And so he walks in there and the king's like, hey man, Jason gave that to me this morning. He said, hey, this is gonna be killer. <laughs> Got nothing. King brings him in and now he's gotta go. And Haman has to honor the man that he, that he, that he hated. And, and, and we're gonna see here how the Lord not only, not only spares Mordecai, but through this, the entire Jewish race. Because you know what happens next is, is for sure Mordecai is honored. Haman goes home. I'm time to read through all this this morning, but Haman goes home, tells his family what happened. You know what his family says to him? You're in a lot of trouble. I mean, that's what they say to him. Man, you're not gonna survive this. And sure enough, he didn't. Esther ends up having this banquet. The king continues to ask her, hey, what is it? What can I do for you? You know what she says to him eventually? She says, king, you know what? There's a man that has threatened my, my, my relative and um, he needs to be dealt with. And so the king's contemplating this. Haman like just casts himself physically on the queen, like just begging for her mercy. The king walks in. He's like, that ain't gonna happen. And they end up hanging Haman on the exact gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. You can't miss the providence of God in this. And just in case you think that the providence of God has no provision for the foolishness of man, I want you to see here today how God uses and he takes even the pride of Haman and he turns it on its head. And I, I wanna spend just a few minutes today Really, really taking a deeper dive into Haman, who's such a central figure here throughout the middle section of Esther. And, and, and maybe to take a few things away from him today that can be instructive for us so that we don't make the same kind of foolish mistakes. Not that they might be at this level or look exactly the same, but we, we might not make the same kind of foolish mistakes that Haman made. Because here's my challenge to us today. We, we've got to lean more into the providence of our great and mighty God than we do the pride of our own sinful hearts. And there's some application here for us. Some things we can learn about how God works and how he's worthy of our deepest affection and how in order to lean into his affection and his will for us, we have to be willing to humble ourselves and to fully trust him. 
Now, let, let, let's talk a few minutes about this pride, this pride that's seen in Haman. Can I give you a key takeaway today? I'm gonna put this on the screen. I want you to make a note of this. I want you to see here that pride is the carbon monoxide of a sinful heart. You need to understand the gravity of pride today. You need to understand that the pride of Haman is not unique to Haman. Actually, the root of that is in all of us. The foolishness of Haman is in all of us. I want you to understand today that pride is the carbon monoxide of the sinful heart. Do you realize that most sins that we commit, most acts of foolishness are not that difficult to detect? Like when you succumb to greed, let's say you embezzle $100,000, like you don't wake up one day and be like, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> now, you know. You know, like when you tell a lie, you lash out in anger towards someone, you, like, you know, you can see it. Do you realize though, that when it comes to pride, it's like carbon monoxide, it's very difficult to detect, but yet it's deadly in its presence. It's very difficult to detect the sin of pride, but yet it is absolutely destructive. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What we see in Haman here, we really see in all of us. Let me break it down in three ways. First of all, let me, let me show you how pride is defined. Then I wanna show you how it works. And then most importantly, I wanna show you quickly here how we cure it. First of all, what, what is pride? Pride is simply an absorption in self. C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis said, said it this way, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. Pride puts the focus on you, what you want, how you feel. Therefore, everything you do, you do for you. Everything you do becomes a means to an end to satisfy you, to promote you, to make you feel better. Even the people around you can become a means to an end to advance whatever it is about you that you want to advance. And the, and the core issue with pride is ultimately the issue of comparison or competition. Let me again, go back to C.S. Lewis. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is so incredibly insightful. C.S. Lewis said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. And that's a good word, a convicting word. Pride turns everything into a means to an end. Thus, let me go back to Haman. He gets no pleasure out of being the prime minister of Persia because he wants everyone to esteem him. He wants everyone to respect him. He wants everyone to see him as they see the king. And when you have this one man sitting at the king's gate that will not do it, it is insufferable to Haman. And he commits not only to destroying him, but his entire race. You see, pride as Lewis defined it, is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. And like carbon monoxide, it is deadly. You see it in what we often think of as a superiority complex, which is easy to recognize. May I submit to you this morning though, you also see it in inferiority, being down on yourself, always beating yourself up. Both of these can be equally focused on you. And biblical humility 
is not a devaluing of you. It is simply a shift to where you think of you less and you think of others more. Someone once said it this way, I love this. Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's okay to acknowledge how God has made you, the gifts and the talents that he's given to you, the opportunities in front of you. It's good to work hard, to apply yourself, to, to manage your resources wisely. It's good to exercise wisdom and discernment and discipline. The scripture teaches us these things. Humility is not being down on yourself. No, you can be just as prideful as one with an inferiority complex as you can be one with a superiority complex. No, biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less thinking of God more, learning to serve others more. Is that not the great commandment? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor how? As yourself. That's biblical humility. And so what is pride? Pride is just the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration and absorption of self. Secondly, how does it work? Let me, let me talk about how pride works. Well, pride works in this way, it's always justifying its mistakes. It won't hear criticism. It won't stand to think that you've done anything wrong. It, it develops bitterness as an attitude, thinking that you're superior than someone else, saying, well, I would never act like them or conduct myself like them. Pride is, is right now in the room, online. Pride right now is thinking of somebody else as I'm talking. Pride is thinking right now, oh, I know, I know somebody exactly what he's talking about. Pride is elbowing the person next to you, potentially your spouse. Hey, you paying attention to this? <laughs> How does, how does pride work? How does it work? Look at Haman. You'll see how it works. It leads you to foolishly develop plans and plots that only get the best of you. It, it leads you to be dissatisfied even in the midst of some of the most profound blessings. It makes note of every slide. It, 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 it can't allow for constructive criticism. It, it doesn't welcome accountability, learning, knowledge, discipleship. No, pride works in such a way that, 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 that it manifests itself in every area of our lives. It really is the root sin that all of us struggle with, every single one of us. And so it's like C.J. Mahaney said, no one can ever say they're humble. All they can say is that they're a proud person seeking humility by the grace of God. So how do we cure this pride in us? Well, let me, let, let, let me take you to something that may not be obvious, but I, I, I think it's profound in the story. How do we cure it? Well, I'll tell you, common culture tells you you cure it just by trying a little bit harder. Put a sticky note on your vanity mirror. Put a note, a reminder in your car. Hey, I'm not gonna be prideful today, but it's not that easy. You see, for Haman, notice he was asking for a robe that was a sign that the king loved him and favored him. The, the, Haman wanted a horse that he was envisioning himself riding to where others would esteem him as they esteemed the king. He wanted the same kind of honor, the same kind of glory as the king himself received. May I submit to you today, this is what might not be obvious to you, that Haman's not wrong for asking these things. Now just think about this. 
Haman's not wrong in desiring these things. If we're honest, all of us desire these things. You know what Haman's problem was? He was asking for them from the wrong king. Because the true glory that you and I seek and the true glory that Haman seeks and the true glory that so many in our society and our world seeks is not a glory that any earthly king can ever give you. See, Haman, if you look inside his heart and you see his deepest need here, if you see what his pride is pointing to, his pride is pointing to glory, acceptance, honor, being esteemed, being treasured, being valued. He, he, he's not looking for the wrong things. All of us are looking for those things, but he was looking for them from the wrong person. One person described pride in this way, we're always seeking the praise of the praiseworthy. We want the praise of the praiseworthy. We wanna be honored. We wanna be blessed. We wanna be esteemed. We wanna be treasured. We wanna be valued. Here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with those desires. There is something wrong when we seek those desires constantly through broken people, broken relationships, and in the case of Haman, the wrong king, the only king, and there is a king, hallelujah, that can give you all of these things. His name is Jesus, and he's the only king that can ever give these things to you. What does Jesus do? Yeah, what does Jesus do for us? What does Jesus do for us? He takes a broken person like me, a prideful person like me. And what did Jesus come and do? He came at his own expense with his own life and he suffered tremendous humility, did he not? He, he suffered just egregiously. He suffered humiliation. He suffered physically. He, he suffered the mocking of his name and of his character. And he came in my place and in your place and he suffered. He humbled himself out of love for us, out of the interest that you and I possess, not his own. And he came and he endured and he went to the cross and he died and he took our debt upon himself, our sin, our rejection our judgment. And on the third day, when God raised him from the dead, listen to me very, very carefully. The Bible makes this clear. History makes this clear. He rose from the dead as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And every single person that looks to this King is immediately through faith and humility saved from their unrighteousness, their ungodliness and their own human pride. And we are clothed with the robe of our King, a robe of righteousness. And the King looks at us, yes. And the king looks at us. And let me tell you the good news of the gospel. It's what I call the gospel. It's good news. When the, when the king looks at me, he doesn't see my flaws. He doesn't see a bushel of apples in the backseat of the car. He doesn't see my failures. Praise the Lord. He sees the robe of the righteousness of Christ. And he accepts me as one of his own. And that's how he sees you if you put your faith in Jesus today. He doesn't see you anymore as a slave to sin. He doesn't see you anymore as an enemy. He doesn't see you anymore as a stranger. Now he sees you as a son or as a daughter who receives the same honor as your brother, Jesus of Nazareth. You wanna be honored. You wanna be valued. You wanna be esteemed. You wanna have meaning and purpose. You wanna have a cause for which to live and dedicate your life that will never disappoint you or let you down. Let me tell you something, stop living living for the earthly kings and the earthly pursuits and the earthly accolades. Start living for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the honor, yes. And the honor, 
and the glory and the acceptance that all of us need will be realized in Jesus. Not just on your best day, <laughs> even on your worst day. Because you, you can look in the mirror and you can look in the word, which in some way is a mirror, is it not? And you can know for sure that you are loved, treasured, accepted in the same way that Jesus is, clothed with his robe of royal righteousness, accepted as a son and a daughter. And even when you fail, even when you mess up, even when your circumstances aren't tracking the way you would like them to, you can know that you have full acceptance and value. And then you can begin to live your life with a kind of meaning and purpose that's not characterized by pride, it's characterized by selflessness. You can be a generous person who sees all that the Lord gives to you as as a means and a conduit to be a blessing to others. You can see your career not just as an occupation, but as an opportunity for you to be a Christian witness in your field. You can see your relationships not as existing to somehow bring some temporal fulfillment to you to where you're using people to get what you want. No, but you can see these relationships as opportunities for gospel impact and encouragement. You can live your life, not as Haman did with the peril of pride. You can live your life as Jesus did with the glory of service and of true fulfillment. That's what Haman teaches us. Listen, the providence of God is on full display. The Lord's gonna win. (laughs) His plan is going to prevail. And he even uses at times the pride of mankind to accomplish it. That's the wisdom of God. But we learn from that in our desire to have the praise of the praiseworthy, that there's no greater praise than the praiseworthy praise of the one who is most praiseworthy, and that is Jesus. For as he said in John 17, 22, check this out. He says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. You want that robe? You want that glory? That meaning, that purpose, that acceptance? You can have it today. You just can't look to the wrong king. You gotta look to King Jesus.